Well, hi, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And, um, you know, last time, before I jump into the, into the chapter, um, last time on the meeting, on the group, um, someone had asked a question about sharing pictures that they had seen. They had heard me talk about the photos before, but never actually shared them. So I said that I would start this time with, um, with sharing my photos, but I'm going to I'm going to do them fast. I'm not going to really spend a lot of time on them because I really want to get to the chapter. They've got a lot, a lot to offer us here. So I'm just going to kind of quickly show. And the reason that I show um, the photos is because um, it's a visual. I always say it's a visual representation of what it looks like to have an experience with the miraculous. And I'm the beneficiary of a visible miracle. And I think when you've been gifted a miracle that's visible, the purpose is to make sure that other people see it so that other people know that this is a possibility for them. Um, so this is really, you know, this is what it looks like to be in, in this disease. Um, you know, throughout, goes back a number of years. I was younger, my hair was longer, my kids were younger. Um, but this is, you know, this was how I walked through life. At my top weight, I was over 300 pounds. I was, um, I felt like there was a glass wall surrounding me and the people that loved me. And every single event I showed up to, I walked in there carrying not only 300 pounds, but years of resentment, years of things that just had had long since expired and were unnecessary. Um, and and um, this was me when my son was a baby. I could barely hold him and I couldn't keep up with him. Um, and I was just, it was devastating. Um, this is me at my worst, at, at the absolute, this was where I was just at the worst in, my, in this leopard sweater. It was one of the few things that fit me. And I just like to show the side by side because I think it's, you could see it, same kid, same hubby. It's me, um, just, you know, God had it, God, did his thing with me. God gave me a miracle. Um, and in the gray dress, what I think is significant there is if you look at my face, you could see something different in my eyes. My body hadn't yet caught up because part of my recovery, part of my abstinence is I don't diet. I am abstinent. I, I re And so when you don't diet and you're abstinent, it takes your body sometimes, sometimes a while, to readjust, but you can tell that spiritually something happened to me. I'm a different person there. And that glass that separated me and the rest of the world was gone. And that particular day, I remember like all the resentments that I had been carrying around for years. I remembered this day thinking, I love everybody. How is it that I love my family so much? Um, and that's this program. And this is me. You know, every one of those dresses fits me. I go in my closet, I pull them out, and there I am wearing one of those again. Um, you know, another side by side. Come watch it again, a side by side. And there's me and my there's me and my my dear friend Janet. Over the summer, I pulled out one of those dresses, and I just wore it. All right, so that's it for the for the pictures. Um, and again, the purpose is because it's supposed to, first of all, it's supposed to offer hope. If you're living in the bondage of a 300 pound body or 
living in the bondage of a resentment that goes back for forever, right? That feeling that was on my face. Those pictures hopefully demonstrate that that does not have to be your reality at all anymore. That God does incredible things for us and has done for me. Um, so let's jump into the chapter to wives. Page 104 starts off with, we would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps few can. We wanna analyze mistakes we have made we want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. And so that, that's the foundation of all of our shares in this fellowship, that we understand and that we analyze our mistakes, mine, not yours. I'm not analyzing your mistakes. I'm analyzing mine. And, and then why? Because my job is to demonstrate hope, that no situation is hopeless, right? So that's like the first thing that we should be able to take away, that nothing is hopeless. Page 104 again says, we have had long rendezvous with hurt, pride, frustration, self-pity, misunderstanding, and fear. And these are not pleasant companions. And then on 105, it says they had been unselfish and self-sacrificing. We have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husband's reputations. We've prayed, we've begged, and we've been patient. We have struck out viciously, run away, been hysterical, terror-stricken, sought sympathy, and have been retaliatory. And, you know, this chapter is written, you know, to somebody who has a spouse who's, who has this problem, right? Who has this disease. But we don't have to just look at it that way. We could look at it as for ourselves. And we can also look at it as not necessarily as addicts, you know, as spouses or or family members of the addicts, but of anybody, of anybody. Because we also learn in the beginning, the very, very beginning of the big book, it says that we believe the spiritual life has benefits for many, for all. So, you know, yes, I had a necessity for a spiritual life because of this crushing disease, but this spiritual life really has great benefits for any. So we can apply these principles for our family members who may or may not have these problems. And what I got from that paragraph is that it's pretty clear that we've lived in misery and in bondage, right? That's the experience. We come in here pretty miserable and having been crushed. And, you know, I, I think about in that paragraph, it talks about lying to protect a reputation, you know? And, and that's such a sad and lonely way to live. You know, if I'm dishonest in order to protect my reputation, basically what I'm doing is I'm lying to manipulate someone to feel favorable towards me. And I know that I don't actually deserve that favor or their approval. So it's like a double lie. I lie to get something. And then the thing that I get 
I have to live with the feeling that I don't even deserve it. And how many times for myself have I lived in fear of not being liked, right? And then once liked, worried about having that revoked because I knew in my heart I didn't deserve it. You know, and what we find out in this program is that our reputation is not half as important as our integrity. Our integrity must come before our reputation. What God thinks of me must take precedence over what others think of me. Page 107 describes what it's like to be an alcoholic or a compulsive eater. So inaccessible that it seemed as though a great wall had been built around them. And when I read that here, I thought, wait, that's how I've always described myself in that picture that I show of me and my sisters, because I remember feeling that way. And when I read it in this chapter, I'm like, that was not unique to me, that feeling like there's a wall around me. Um, and I spent so much of my life feeling like I was living my life with a glass wall separating me from my family. And it says further on, what had become of their judgment, their common sense, and their willpower? Well, I have to tell you, I could have excellent judgment in certain areas at certain times. Same with common sense. At certain times, I had excellent common sense. And same with willpower. And all of this, all of that, common sense, good judgment, and willpower are unpredictable and unreliable. Why could they not say that drink meant ruin to them? Why was it when these dangers were pointed out that they agreed and then got drunk again immediately? So you could point something out to me and I would say, oh, you're right. Yes, you're right. I, I see it. You're right. And then I would go right back out and do the same thing again. Why is that? Well, having things pointed out to me was never effective for the long haul. It may have temporarily gotten my attention, and then I would make promises and commitments to do better. But all of this is information, and all of it is emotional appeal. And all of it relies entirely on my memory and my memory fails to keep me in check, right? In my worst moments, I may remember that I have a very serious problem or I may not. I may remember that I can't stop once I start or I may not. But I'll tell you what I could never remember in my, in my worst, worst, worst moments. I could never remember that I really cared. Like when it was at its worst, what I couldn't seem to summon up the memory of was that feeling that I really cared about my life, that it really mattered to me. You know, so pointing things out, it's pretty harmless and pretty pointless, not harmless. It, it's ineffective. Page 108, it says, so then try not to condemn. Just another very sick, unreasonable person. Treat him when you can as though he had pneumonia. When he angers you, 
remember that he is very ill. So this can, again, this can apply for if you happen to be in a relationship with someone who's an addict or not. You know, we can look at people as spiritually developing. We can look at people as spiritually sick. Certainly, if they're suffering from this disease, we can say, yes, they have an illness. Um, you know, when we condemn people, we disapprove of them in a very visible, vocal manner. And we can't help people when we condemn them. If you treat addicts and family members who may or may not be addicts as though they have pneumonia, it means that we show compassion and we show understanding, which is always the best way to approach people. Page 108 says, now it's gonna go into the four categories of drinkers, right? One, the heavy drinker may be constant, may be heavy only on certain occasions. He's positive that he can handle his liquor, that it does him no harm, that drinking is necessary in his business. He would be insulted if he were called an alcoholic. This world is full of people like him. Some will moderate or stop altogether, and some will not. Of those who keep on, a good number will become true alcoholics after a while. So this is the heavy drinker, the heavy eater. In Overeaters Anonymous, you know, we say that the only requirement is a desire to stop, right? That's the only requirement for, for being a member. And this type, though, that I just described, doesn't have a desire, right? Doesn't have a desire and doesn't yet have a problem, right? And the word is yet. They said yet, yet. And the truth is, no matter how much you might love somebody, you cannot help the ones who have no desire. We can be kind and we can demonstrate the spiritual way of life but unless they have the desire and unless they have identified themselves as having this problem, we cannot offer them our solution because they don't have our problem. But we can demonstrate the spiritual way of life because it has benefits for all. Number two, here's the second type. Lack of control, unable to stay on the water wagon even when he wants to. So now we're getting to someone who, yikes, wants to but can't, often gets entirely out of hand when drinking, admits that it's true, but is positive that he will do better. So this is someone who hasn't yet admitted defeat, maybe beginning to lose his friends, his business may suffer worried at times and is becoming aware that he cannot drink like other people, right? Sometimes he's drinking in the morning, sometimes throughout the day, he's remorseful, tells you he wants to stop, but once the spree is over, he begins to think how he can moderate the next time. And we might think that this person is in danger and they have the earmarks of a real alcoholic but, you know, they're, they're not quite there yet. And I've been at that spot too. 
that I would swear when I tried to put on a pair of pants that didn't fit, I would be full of remorse and regret. And I would say, oh, that's it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And then lose a little weight and think, you know what? Now I can moderate. Now I've got this. I wasn't quite there yet. I still thought I could do the job on my own. Number three now, we're going to get to the most hopeful case. He's gone much further than husband number two. Friends have slipped away. Home is a near wreck, cannot hold a position. Doctors have been called, admits he can't drink like other people, but doesn't see why. Clings to the notion that he will yet find a way to do so. And then comes to the point where he desperately wants to stop, but cannot. You can be quite hopeful of a situation like this. So yes, backed into a corner and knowing we cannot moderate, wanting to stop and not being able to is the best spot for us to be in. And it's the best spot for us to meet another compulsive overeater. And remember that before we can accept spiritual help, we have to be convinced that we actually need spiritual help. And these are people who are becoming convinced that they need spiritual help. Okay, now here's husband num number four or fellow number four. You are in complete despair, placed in an institution, violent, definitely insane. This picture may not be as dark as it looks. I love that. They're painting a picture of like horror, someone who's in an institution, who's a, who's a terrible, wicked mess. And it says here, not as dark, not as dark as it looks. Many were just as far gone, yet they got well. And let's remember that this is a program of miracles and transformations. Sometimes the more hopeless one is, the more likely the surrender won't seem unreasonable. And that's where it was for me, although I wasn't institutionalized, I reached a point where I just, I didn't want to live anymore. I just couldn't imagine living like this anymore. And at that spot, surrendering was actually easy. It wasn't a struggle. Out of my mouth came help me. And I did everything that I was suggested to do. And I love when I meet people in that spot because there is no fight. They don't, they don't fight any direction they're given. And if you're looking for a sponsee, that's the kind you want. You want someone who says, okay, 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 right? And anything that you suggest. Now, of course, let's be clear, we, we have to suggest has to be aligned with this big book. It can't be something, you know, insane and crazy, but anything suggested, any spiritual direction, somebody who is in complete despair doesn't fight it. All right, so now that we know the types we can look for, how can we live with these situations? Now we're gonna discover the principles of success for living with anyone we come into contact with. And here's some principles on page 111. The first principle of success is that you should never be angry. What, 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 what? 
Never be angry. Nope. Patience and good temper are most necessary. Okay. It sounds crazy to think that we cannot ever be angry, but let's remember what it says to us on page 66. If we were to live, we have to be free of anger, right? That anger is the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. So, okay, what does this mean? Well, if my teenage daughter, which she was a teenager now, she's, you know, a young adult and I'm taking over her old room, but there was a time she stayed out too late, right? She didn't follow my directions, got bad grades. When hubby doesn't do something he says he's going to do, I cannot get angry. That's my direction here. Now, it doesn't mean you stay quiet, right? Or let your family just do whatever they want, run amok. All it means is that you remain undisturbed. My anger never improves the situation. It never makes the situation better. When I meet difficulties, when I match that with anger, the situation does not get better. It only gets worse. Two, here's another spiritual uh, direction. Never tell him what he must do about his drinking. And I would include, don't tell him what he must do about his TV watching, about their spending, about someone's parenting choices, about their yelling, about your kids' grades, about their finances. Wait a second. I can never tell anybody what to do. Well, why not? Because when we nag, we drive people away. We kind of force them away from being with us. What happens is they avoid us. Nagging doesn't change anyone's behavior. What it does is it makes you someone to avoid and it also makes you someone to lie to. When we nag people, we are actually putting them in a position where they're more apt to be dishonest. When I ask my kid repeatedly, when I know the answer, and I ask them, did you blank? And I already know they didn't. I'm walking them into the lie. It's better for me to say, I know that you didn't blank. Is there a way that I can help you do blank, right? when it comes to your kid. So if you know your kid did not do some responsibility, it's always best not to repeatedly ask them to do it or not to ask them if they did it. And what happens is when we do this to our children or to our loved ones, we become the thing on their back. We become the burden rather than the natural consequence, let the natural consequence as often as possible, let the natural consequence put the squeeze on the person. 
that's a far more effective, you know, motivator for people. Three, be determined that your husband's drinking or your kids' struggles or your siblings' activities or your parents' problems don't spoil your relations with your children or your friends. It is possible to have a full and useful life, though your husband continues to drink or your kids continue to make bad choices. And we know women who are unafraid and even happy under these conditions. So I have to tell you, when I was growing up, I heard this thing regularly from my mom. It was a common statement. And I believed it. And what I heard was a mother can only be as happy as her least happiest child. That's what was told to me. And I thought it sounded like such a loving, selfless, caring position to be, right? A mother who can't be happy if her babies aren't happy. But, you know, it's actually not true. Because first of all, it's nobody's responsibility to keep me happy. It's nobody's job to keep me happy. And second of all, if you have a family member who's struggling with their own problems and their own happiness and unhappiness, it's pretty unfair to hitch my happiness on the back of their happiness, right? They're struggling enough with their own. Now I'm putting mine on theirs as well. And it simply isn't true. It's just not true. No one else is responsible for my happiness. God gave me a life and it is meant to be full and useful. Talk about how, you know, um, I wrote here, talk about. So here's what I wanna talk about. When my daughter at one point was having a, a real struggle and it was, an, it was a mental health struggle, um, I would get extraordinarily emotional over it. And right, you know, rightly so, I was sad. It was painful and it was difficult, but I would, I would make it over the top. It was about me. I was overly emotional about my struggle with her struggles. I was struggling with her struggles and she knew about it. She knew about it. She heard me cry about it. She heard me carry on about it. And I remembered going to one of her appointments where I had to sort of like give a little family history and, and I couldn't, I just couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop crying. And her therapist said to me, she said, you were going to be like this. And, and I, I remembered thinking, well, of course I'm going to be like this, but I realized in hindsight that that was selfish because I made her struggles my struggles. I made her feel responsible for keeping me happy. And this couldn't, kid, couldn't keep herself happy. So it was really, it was up to me. And I'll tell you what I had to do. I had to work on my own spiritual relationship. I had to find my connection. I had to strengthen my connection because her struggles were not my struggles. Her struggles were her struggles. You know, and similarly, my youth, not even in my youth, my early 40s, actually, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, 
my siblings and my mother kept it from me for the same reason that I was overly emotional about it and I could offer no support. And I remembered when I found out I was angry, how dare you keep this from me? You kept this from me, you know, and, and I made it about them keeping it from me rather than let me offer some comfort and help. And so we're cautioned, do not make other people's problems your problems because they will feel the burden of that. Okay, number four, be reasonable and patient. Have him bring up the subject himself. Be sure you're not critical during such a discussion. Let him see that you want to be helpful rather than critical. You know, um, an example I can kind of give you of this was recently, um, my son was upset over, he, he said to me that he's not getting involved enough in extracurricular activities and that he was fearful that it might keep him from getting into a better college, whatever that means. Like now I have such a, such a broad understanding. At one point that would have meant the world to me. And now I'm like, what does that even mean a better college? Who knows what better is? But, you know, rather than criticize him and say, yeah, you're right. You should be more involved in things. Why aren't you being more involved in things? Have you looked into blank, blank, blank? I asked him, do you want my help? Was he interested in being encouraged? Did he want any suggestions? You know, and, and I would say now it's also the same when my daughter brings problems to me about her job. I don't come in with the answers. I just ask them, you know, do you want me to offer you any help? Is there any way that I can help you with this struggle? Rather than come in thinking that I'm the know-it-all guy. Because first of all, what do I know about being a 10th grader in today's world? Nothing, right? Just what I think I know. And what do I know about my daughter's job? You know, at one time I was advising her about being a tattoo artist. I know nothing about being a tattooist. Zero, right? So you know, best for me to just offer support than answers. Number five, if we're talking about an addiction, either with a family member or perhaps a fellow or potential member, you can tell them that you've been worried and that it may be needless to worry. And here it says something that surprised me on page 112. It says, show him you have confidence in his power to stop or moderate. Now, why would we tell someone that we think that they can do it on their own? Well, because we're never supposed to diagnose anybody else. We're actually not supposed to tell people that you'll never get well on your own. You'll never do this on your own. Let them discover whether or not they can do the job on their own. And six, if your family member isn't receptive or a potential fellow isn't receptive, here we're told, try to help another, right? If someone isn't receptive, if someone isn't interested in the help that we have to offer, no worries, find someone else who is. Seven, ask him if he would really like to get over drinking for good. Do not ask that he do it for you or anyone else. Just what do you like to? Tell us some of the interesting stories that you've read. Ask them to read the chapter on alcoholism. 
And so these are the questions that we ask potential sponsees. Do you want to get over this problem, right? We tell them some of our own stories. Do you want to get well? Number eight, page 113 says, if he's lukewarm or thinks he is not an alcoholic, what do they suggest? Leave him alone. The seed has been planted, right? Do not get in the way of someone else's bottom. If a man is to get well, that desire must come from within. You know, what grows the desire for many of us is the pain of the consequences. As the consequences become more painful, oftentimes the desire gets increased. So we're really not supposed to get in the way of other people's bottoms. Number nine, remember the best situation is the number three type, the one who wants to stop. And with them, you can bring them the volume as joyfully as though you had struck oil, right? You can come forth with happiness and joy, which is how we're supposed to share. And that person might not share your enthusiasm, but our enthusiasm is actually pretty contagious. People get excited when they see other people excited. It's what draws people in when they see enthusiasm. You know, again, we're told, don't crowd someone, let them decide for themselves. And, you know, always, if you've got a family member who has a problem, they suggest it's always better that someone outside the family present the book because they can urge action without arousing hostility. We never wanna arouse hostility in people. And 10, you would suppose that men in the fourth classification would be quite hopeless, right? That's the one that's like in the institution, you know, declared insane, completely unable, but we know that's not so. Someone who you have complete despair about well, who better than to receive a miracle is someone that people have given up on. And then on page 114, it says something so beautiful. The power of God goes deep, right? Do not despair. Cling to hope. We are always supposed to cling to hope. All right. So now the chapter is going to change from focusing on being helpful towards others, and now it's going to shift to your own spiritual well-being. Page 115 says, embarrassment is unnecessary. So here's a promise. Your new courage, good nature, and lack of self-consciousness will do wonders for you socially. Isn't that beautiful? We never thought, I never thought that my social life was going to improve as a result of this program. But when you feel courageous and good-natured and you don't feel self-conscious, it's more attractive to people, right? You're less socially awkward. Here, second, number two, unless they actually need protection from their father, unless somebody needs protection, it is best not to take sides in any argument. Don't take sides in people's arguments. I would say period. I am not to get on sides when people argue. My job is to be peacemaker, right? 
not allies, not allies, right? Peacemakers. Okay, don't lie to protect others. Apparently, apparent calamity has been a boon to us for it opened up a path which led to the discovery of God. If God can solve the age old riddle of alcoholism, he can solve your problems too. We were afflicted with pride, self-pity, vanity, and all the things which make up the self-centered person. And we were not above selfishness or dishonesty. And you know what? We know God solves that too, right? God solves all of it. Don't lie to protect other people. Allow them to feel the pain of their own consequences. When we lie to protect other people, we are keeping them from their painful bottom. And we're also, I'd say sometimes we're tying God's hands. We're keeping them from needing a relationship with God because we keep playing God in their lives. We keep making ourselves the God of their world. And we're not competent for that role. We will fail. Page 116 says, try to put spiritual principles to work in every department of our lives. And here's a beautiful promise. When we do that, we find it solves our problems too. Lack of fear, lack of worry, and hurt feelings is a wonderful thing, right? So we get fear gone, worry gone, hurt feelings gone. That's the promise that we get when we put spiritual principles in all aspects of our lives. That means at my job, with my mom, in my meetings, at the bank, in the grocery store, wherever we go, we can take these spiritual principles and use them. Page 117 says, if you and your husband find a solution for the pressing problem of drink, you are of course going to be very happy. Yeah, we're gonna get happy, but all problems will not be solved at once. The seed has started to sprout in new soil, but growth has only begun. In spite of your newfound happiness, there will be ups and downs. Many of the old problems will still be with you. This is as it should be. And I think about that. Why is that, that this is as it should be? Well, because our lives are not necessarily meant to be problem free. And that for me, the working of my problems, the working out of my problems become opportunities. Difficulties should be regarded as part of your education for thus you will be learning to live. You will make mistakes, but if you are earnest, they will not drag you down. Instead, you will capitalize on them. A better way of life will emerge when they are overcome. So our difficulties become opportunities for us to learn. And then in fact, when we learn, we become more useful to other people because we pass on what we've learned. There's not a single problem, not a single problem that I have encountered in this program that I have that I have found 
to be a waste. Not one problem. And I have to tell you that since being recovered, just like promised here, my life has not been problem free. But what happened for me, someone said to me recently, Melissa, there's been a change in you in the last few years. And I can't, I don't know what it is. And I've been recovered for more than the last few years. But I kind of, I do know what it is. That there were problems that I had that the solving of them by God through spiritual principles has grown me, has done something to me, and in turn has allowed me to be more useful. And so our problems are not wasted, none of it. So long as I'm honest about my troubles, if I'm humble, meaning I recognize that I'm incapable of being perfect, and I am incapable of solving my difficulties on my own. But it means that I want to do better when I make a mistake. And what happens is God places in front of me people who can benefit from my mistakes. And so here are some snags to be on the lookout for. Irritation, hurt feelings, resentments, unreasonable criticism. Family dissensions are very dangerous. You must carry the burden of avoiding them or keeping them under control. Never forget that resentments is a deadly hazard. Okay, so I have to be on the lookout for irritation, hurt feelings, resentments, unreasonable criticism, and disagreeing with people. You know, the other day I had a disagreement. It was silly over the way the furniture was arranged. And in the moment, like my husband rearranged, I rearranged the furniture the way I wanted. He rearranged it right back the way he wanted. And my reaction was to get snippy and unkind. <laughs> now, I don't have to agree with him. I don't have to say, yes, honey, I love the way you rearranged the room. You know, I don't have to be dishonest, but there's something in between having a tantrum over something so silly and being dishonest and agreeing. And if it seems like I'm fighting just to fight or if I'm being critical, looking for ways to prove my way is best, that they're wrong and I'm right, we're told this is dangerous. It is a burden to me and it should be avoided. And you know whose burden it is to avoid? My burden. It's my job to avoid it. And so I have to ask myself in those situations, is the way the furniture arranged worth dying over? Absolutely not. You know, and so next time you have a heated discussion, no matter what the subject, we're told it should be the privilege to smile and say, this is getting serious. I'm sorry I got disturbed. Let's talk about it later. And this is a beautiful approach to have with people. It's especially effective, I would say, when you're getting into real debates, like serious debates over politics, over like ideology, over the way your kids should be behaving. You know, I've gotten into tangles with my mother-in-law 
and I love her. I've gotten into tangles with her over political issues. And I love this woman and I don't want to fight with her. And I ended the argument. It's a privilege to end the argument by saying, I love you. I don't want to fight with you. Let's, let's, let's just put this aside and go right back to loving each other. And, you know, for me, I can detach from the situation and look for the love that there is in the moment. Page 118 says, you must not expect too much. Patience, tolerance, understanding, and love are the watchwords. Show him these things in yourself and they will be reflected back to you from him. And I would say you show those things to the world and we generally get it reflected back to us. Be realistic with people. Lower expectations actually often give us greater serenity. Our watchwords, what's a watchword? It's a word or a phrase that expresses our core aim, our belief. In other words, it's our code. What's our code? Patience, able to accept or tolerate delays, able to accept problems, able to accept suffering, without becoming annoyed or anxious. So that I can actually walk through situations without being anxious and annoyed. That's what it means to have patience. And tolerance, what's tolerance? Diminished sensitivity to an external situation. I'm not so sensitive to little things. Understanding, we know what understanding is. It's sympathetic. Sympathetic and aware of how other people feel. If you want your relationships to improve, concentrate on your own improvement. Concentrate on improving yourself. Concentrate on how you treat other people and it gets reflected back. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessings. And I really, I really wanna talk about that before we end. Gratitude is a discipline. It's a discipline to be gratitude, and it is a way of life. It is my spiritual work. For myself, you know, in the silly argument over the furniture arrangement, I had to have gratitude. I had to say to myself, wait a second, I got a man I love dearly in that living room who wants to be comfortable in our home Holy smokes, I better be grateful for that, right? I have a couch that needs rearranging or not need rearranging. Pretty lucky, I got a warm place to sit. I got someone who wants to sit there with me. Pretty fortunate. Same thing when I come downstairs and there's dishes in the sink, right? How many people in this world don't have running water? If you've got running water, consider yourself one of the lucky, right? We are the lucky. There's sinks in the dish. If there's dishes in the sink, it means you have food in your house, right? It means you often have people to share that food with. And if it looks like, well, I may have to do the dishes, I may have to do the dishes, right? Dishes, washing dishes is never anything worth dying over, right? And when we do these things, we get improved relations. And like all things, the last the very last thing that I wanted, I know it's like so much, I didn't think I would have anything to say about this chapter, 
but we're told that we put everything in God's hands, including our relationships with others. And with that, I will pass.